know that that saying, it's a tough act to follow. I never thought an introduction or two introductions would be such a tough act to follow. But, um, you know, I thought after that beautiful introduction that Mela uh, gave, um, well, that was very moving. And then all of a sudden there was Paul. So um, I'll try to do them justice. It's wonderful to be back here. Uh, Trinity was very good to me uh, in in the 80s and early 90s, um, saw me through some very difficult times, and I'm always very grateful for that. And it's wonderful to see some familiar faces in the audience, and also all of you who are new to me. I uh, have been doing this, um, this I started out the tour yesterday um, in New York City talking about my new book. But Miller has suggested, and I think it's a great idea, that perhaps uh, what I should talk about today is, um, is Cuba, because Cuba has been in the news a great deal. It's, um, you know, since the 17th of December last year when the, suddenly it was announced that um, after 54 years, uh, relations would be uh, reestablished. And, of course, we in this country get most of our information about Cuba from the corporate press, which has done everything possible, in my opinion, over the last 56 years to mislead people about Cuba, um, to tell lies about Cuba, to make little Cuba an island of, at, the, at that time, 8 million, today 11 million people, appear to be uh, the demon while the great big United States that has militarily invaded Cuba on a grand scale once and on many other smaller scales many times um, has introduced swine flu into the country, has made innumerable attempts on Fidel Castro's life, and has set up, among other things, a, an economic blockade that has devastated the Cuban economy for the past 54 years. But we're the good guys, and um, they're the danger. They're the threat. So um, I'm going to just talk to you from the perspective of a woman who moved to Cuba, as Mila said, uh, at the end of 1969. Uh, I had been involved in the Mexican student movement, which was brutally put down by the Mexican government on the 2nd of October of that year. Uh, there were um, more than a thousand people murdered after a uh, peaceful de student demonstration. It was right before the Olympics in Mexico, and of course Mexico was becoming uh, very worried about uh, people canceling hotel reservations and that kind of thing. Didn't know if it would get its investment back from the, the great sports installations. And so felt that it had to put this movement down uh, as completely as possible. And I, as I say, participated in that movement, not as a leader in any kind of way, but like thousands and thousands of young people at that time, um, I translated um, promotional materials, I passed them out, I hid people in homes, cooked for them, you know, that kind of thing. Very dangerous stuff. And um, so at a certain point I was forced underground, I think also because I was a foreigner living in Cuba, 
um, that made me more obvious, more dangerous maybe. Um, and uh, as Paul said, we were uh, we had published this wonderful bilingual poetry magazine for the preceding eight years. Of course, the magazine died with the repression, and. Um, and I had nowhere to go. I mean, I literally, I had four small children. My youngest was three months old at the time. My oldest was eight. And um, at first it was just, you know, not only did I not know where to go, but um, it was very dangerous for the children. Children were being, uh, children's bodies were being found in the Pedregal and the outskirts of Mexico City as a way of getting to their parents uh, who were activists. And so, um, my passport was stolen at gunpoint, um, which was why I couldn't travel. And so I first had to send my children somewhere to keep them safe. And Cuba was a country uh, that I knew. At that point, I had been there twice. I had been to two meetings, a meeting of poets and a meeting of intellectuals in 1967 and 1968. And I knew it as a country that took children in, that uh, exercised an enormous generosity way beyond the possibilities, the material possibilities of the country. And so um, I sent my four children to Cuba, uh, where they were beautifully cared for until I could arrive. And I found my way out of the country, out of Mexico, and joined them about three months later, uh, towards the end of 1969, and ended up living in Cuba for the next 11 years. I think it's important to say that um, Cuba, at that point, the revolution was about a decade old. So we were still in that effervescence, that euphoria that revolutions tend to have in the first decade or the first years. Everything was possible. Uh, it was wonderful for me as a poet to see what was happening in, in the arts, not just poetry, but music and, and painting and and film, especially film, was becoming extraordinary in Cuba, as it has been all these years, dance. And uh, as a poet myself, I was interested in the question that was being asked by Cuban poets, what, what is the responsibility of the revolution towards artists? And I quickly found out that in Cuba, artists of all kinds were being paid stipends, salaries, to do their art. What a concept. You know, uh, and that, um, and then of course, what is the responsibility of intellectuals and artists to the revolution? You know, uh, what are we supposed to write? What are we supposed to paint? Are we supposed to applaud the revolution? Are we allowed to criticize the revolution? Uh, what What is our role in terms of this giant experiment to change society? So those were very exciting years from from that point of view, because I was in on, um, on those decisions, on those questions. I asked those questions along with my uh, Cuban comrades, poets and artists. And um, in that respect, I also lived through periods of repression, one period in particular of repression in Cuba when things got very rough for um, especially homosexuals and other artists who were perceived as different uh, people with conflictive ideas or whatever. Um, so that was a difficult period, a painful period, which um, I also was um, 
was still there when that period began to dissolve, when people began to take back their power, when the revolutionary leadership began to realize that it had been wrong in, in, that, in those policies and began to reverse them. So that was also very exciting. And for me, it's been extraordinary to see over the years since then that that reversal has continued. And not only continued, but in fact, in 2007, uh, Cuban poets, younger poets, many of them were, had been very young at that time, at the time of the repression, um, suddenly started saying, well, look, you know, things are great now, but how, how did this happen? How was it allowed to happen? How, how, uh, why wasn't it talked about publicly and demanded uh, a public debate about all of that? And that took place throughout the year of 2007. There's a great deal of material available about that if you're interested, because it was a, a wonderful year. It lasted a year, that debate, in many, many public forums. Um, led by architects and painters and poets and, and philosophers and teachers and musicians and so forth. Uh, I should say also that um, aside from um, identifying myself as a socialist, which I do, I identify myself as, as a feminist and feminism was extremely important to me when I began to, to read the first um, documents and texts that were coming out of the United States. I was still living in Mexico at the time. And suddenly, you know, not just as a, as a thinking person or as a person interested always in, in justice, issues of justice, I was um, a woman. And so, you know, I suffered the same kinds of psychological and emotional um, problems that many women of my generation were led to believe, um, oh, it's my fault, you know. Uh, well, this relationship is shot, probably my fault. Um, you know, um, why am I doing all the housework and all the childcare while, while my husband is not doing anything? Well, I should, you know, that's my role, that kind of thing. And feminism, when I discovered it in, at the end of 69, the beginning of 70, really swept me off my feet. As socialism had, because in my life, um, there's always been a close relationship between theory and practice, between reading about um, social change and experiencing what that meant in my life. And so just before going to Cuba, uh, I had uh, collected a series of texts from the United States, uh, from the women's movement here. Uh, I translated them into Spanish and they were published in a tiny little book, a book about this big, called Las Mujeres, The Women. Um, the editor who published the book suggested that that would be a good title because if the word feminism was in the title, it would not pass the censors in most Latin American countries at that time. And he was right. And that book has gone into 30 uh, editions. It's still in print. And today, I very occasionally, but I still get letters from someone who says, you know, my grandmother read that book and it changed her life and I wanted to thank you and so forth and so on. So, so that was um, my mindset when I, when I went to Cuba. I was escaping political repression. I was frightened. I was worn out. I had been without my children for, for several months. Um, I had no idea, in fact, how I would get out of Mexico or if I would be able to get out of Mexico. So, you know, and I was physically sick as well. Um, 
but I, I was curious, tremendously curious, what, what is socialism? You know, what is working socialism? I mean, I had read about the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. I had been to Cuba even twice. But how does it work every day? You know, how does it work in people's lives? Changing society is such a, a, a huge undertaking and fraught with so many problems and dependent on human beings who may be brilliant, who may be um, opportunistic, who may, you know, who may be anything. And so, so you have to take that into consideration as well. So I, I got to Cuba as a poet, very interested in, in what was happening in the arts in Cuba, but also as a, a budding feminist, not quite sure what that meant yet in my own life, but very eager to know whether um, socialism solved women's problems or solved some of them or didn't solve any of them. And so the first thing that I um, did when I got to Cuba was they put me to work in a, in a publishing house. And um, in Cuba, people generally are given jobs in fields that are akin to their, to their interests. And so I was put to work in a, in a publishing house that actually produced um, elegant sort of coffee table books about Cuban uh, flora and fauna and fish and coral reefs and so forth. And I said, um, you know, I'm not really interested in editing a book about um, coral reefs. I want to write about women. I want to find out um, what women's experience is here in the revolution. And the way I thought I would find out would be by asking them. So. I don't think it had occurred to um, people in the leadership in Cuba at that time that it would be interesting to have a book about women. This was 1970 and, you know, um, there was no women's movement particularly in Cuba at the time, although there was here. Um, in Cuba, uh, on the contrary, there was a mass organization called the Federation of Cuban Women, which sort of enrolled uh, all of Cuban women from the age of 14 up into this mass effort to improve women's lives. Um, the stated goal of the Federation of Cuban Women was to, uh, to enlist women in social change and in the jobs, the tasks that the revolution needed, but um, also listen to women and find out what women's problems were and um, address those problems. And I think the Federation of Cuban Women was very successful in the first of those two goals. They, um, you know, almost everyone in Cuba, almost all women belonged to the Federation. And so they would turn out or we would turn out when there was voluntary work, when there was, you know, there were adult education programs and public health programs and so forth. That, that worked wonderfully. But actually listening to women didn't work quite as well. Uh, and uh, I would say in retrospect that the Federation for many, many decades was actually quite an anti-feminist organization. And that really helped women back in Cuba. Women, the revolution was extraordinary in terms of implementing equal pay for equal work, um, getting women into um, to study in, in areas that had previously been reserved for men and that kind of thing. But um, so those were important things. Daycare projects, very important. Workers' dining rooms. I mean, you can't free health care. And I can tell you as a mother of four that that was you know, quite extraordinary. 
<coughs> free education from from creches on up through postgraduate university work. So, you know, there's, it's important to recognize those achievements of the Cuban Revolution. But in terms of really thinking about power, you know, who holds the power? How is it exercised? Uh, how do we rid a society of the sort of traditional concepts of women as supporters of men, as the ones who always have the double shift or the triple shift? that um, the Cubans, um, like most of the communist parties in the world at the time, believed that the important contradiction was class. That if you, you solved the class issue, everything else would sort of fall into place. And uh, we learned, sadly, that that isn't the case. So um, although the Cuban Revolution has done extraordinary things for women and for men, for people, for the population, for children, um, for old people. It um, has been slower to respond on issues of gender and race and um, sexual uh, orientation and so forth. That's changing today um, and hopefully it will continue to change, probably not as fast as it would have changed if those issues had been recognized from the beginning. I went to Cuba, as I say, with my, my children um, caught up with them, got a job, did voluntary work, and for 11 years lived in the country, um, experiencing the ups and downs, the attacks from the United States, uh, the attacks from Cuban exiles in this country, the errors of the revolution itself, which went in one economic direction and then in another, and, and so forth and so on. And, um, and then eventually in 1980 left and moved on to Nicaragua where the revolution was new and I was interested in experiencing a whole other culture. But those 11 years in Cuba gave me a sense of uh, what the country is, what the Cuban people are, a tremendously resilient population, very creative, uh, and that creativity I think uh, should be recognized as a Cuban attribute long before the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Um, the revolution had some good human capital to work with. Um, although before 1959, uh, education, especially higher education, was really reserved for the wealthy classes. And what the revolution did was spread it out. In 1961, there was, for example, a a literacy campaign that lasted a year where uh, illiteracy in Cuba was reduced from almost 40% to just over 2%. Um, so, you know, those were, those were initiatives that were applauded by the United Nations and every international body. And um, then Cuba began its at least sixth grade. That was the goal. And then at least ninth grade and for adults. And so, you know, that has continued. Cuba has been extraordinarily generous in terms of international aid. You've probably read about the Cubans who went to fight Ebola in Africa last year. Um, I'm sure you've read about uh, the children from Chernobyl who were invited to Cuba for uh, months of, of uh, complicated uh, operations uh, about Cuba's response to the earthquake of 2010 in Haiti, um, and about Cuban internationalism, some of which 
was uh, defined by the US press as exporting revolution. Um, the United States um, that has gone into Afghanistan and Iraq and wherever it feels like um, destroying cultures and ruining countries and causing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths and now these tremendous forced migrations which are just appalling um, has been critical of Cuba because in the 70s and early 80s Cuba trained uh, revolutionaries to go to countries um, where uh, they were invited and uh, where they um, tried to, 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 to uh, contribute to movements that would liberate those countries. In most cases, they were unsuccessful and ended badly. Uh, but I see those um, gestures as being <coughs> gestures of tremendous generosity and internationalism. I don't uh, think we should be talking about exporting revolution in a country that exports war. So, um, as you can tell, I'm not impartial. <laughs> My uh, vision of Cuba is the vision of a woman who lived there, who two of my children, in fact, lived there quite a bit longer than I did. And, and of someone who has returned um, periodically, I've probably been back to Cuba 20 times since I left, most recently this past April. Cuba is changing tremendously, and it's interesting to me because since the 17th of December of last year when it was announced by Cuba's president and our president that relations would be reestablished, um, the two comments, or well, one is a question and one is a comment that I heard most frequently among people I know is, um, well, uh, what will happen when Fidel dies? That's the question. And the comment was, um, well, I better get down to Cuba before it changes. As if, you know, somehow from one day to the next, it was going to change. And in fact, Cuba has been changing for years. It's, you know, gone through this terrible period. It continues to be in this period of U.S. embargo. But then it had to go through this terrible shock of um, the implosion of the socialist bloc in Europe and losing its major trade partners um, from one day to the next. A third of its economy was affected by that. And yet there it remains and it's had to make adjustments and it's had to um, embrace elements of a market economy and like many countries in the world that call themselves socialist, um, it's had to change. And you know some of these changes are inevitable and I think in Cuba really the um, the goal at this point is to save those major achievements of the revolution, which I would say are universal health care and free education uh, and work for everybody, although not everybody today in Cuba is working. That's something that's suffered as well. Uh, when I lived there, everyone was working. Um, so I think, I think the revolution is trying to save those achievements uh, as much as possible which are what they see as the major achievements of socialism, to save the honoring of art and culture and the idea that culture belongs to everybody and that everyone should have a right to, you know, in Cuba, all cultural uh, events are free, as all sports events are. So um, I think those are the things that are important. I've seen a lot of changes in my recent trips. Um, for one thing, you know, so many buildings in Havana were just um, falling apart, falling on people, uh, 
you know, they couldn't get for all of these years, they couldn't get uh, building materials, repair materials, paint and so forth, and the sea air is not kind to, to, to buildings, so um, that's been a terrible problem, and I've seen in recent years how those buildings are being repaired finally, uh, some of it by private money, some of it by state money, but again, I see uh, Cuba sticking to its priorities because the first buildings that have been repaired have been the hospitals and the schools. So again, those are priorities that I value. Uh, I don't think of them as communist values or capitalist values. I think of them as human values. And um, so, you know, change is happening. I think the United States will definitely affect, the, these relations will definitely affect uh, what happens next in Cuba, but I, I would caution you to um, be careful about um, imagining that it's all up to the United States, because that's something that we do here in this country. You know, what we do is going to determine what happens in the world. So I would just urge you to think about Cuba <laughs> and think about Cuba's experience over this past half a century and understand that Cuba is going to have a big input here. You know, it obviously is going to be affected by what we do in the United States, but perhaps we are not going to determine that. We weren't uh, able here to destroy the re revolution at Bay of Pigs. We weren't able to destroy uh, their pig population by swine. <laughs> we weren't able to, to, uh, to murder Fidel. So, you know, just just have some confidence in Cuban ingenuity, imagination, creativity. They've got quite a bit of it there. I've seen people um, learn how to repair a 1959 uh, Chevy with scotch tape. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that have been necessary in Cuba. I'd like to read um, a poem by one of Cuba's greatest poets, uh, Nicolas Guillén, uh, called uh, Tengo, I Have. And it's a poem that was written right after the revolution um, came to power. And uh, Nicolas Guillén was sort of Cuba's national poet. He was um, uh, uh, a black Cuban, an Afro-Cuban, um, who obviously before the revolution suffered um, all kinds of marginalization. And so this, this poem <coughs> speaks to that. And... Um, I'm going to see if I can read my translation of it. And then I'd like to uh, end with a poem by somebody very young. I'll find one that sort of speaks more to uh, what Cuban poets are concerned with today, although there is no one thing that Cuban poets are concerned with. The voices are so different, which is really uh, one of the things that um, I find very exciting in Cuba is that the voices are very different. So now I feel like this really young person because I see people going to, to poetry readings and reading off their cell phones and stuff. I've never done this, but I forgot this <laughs> manuscript, so I only have it on here. So I'm hoping that I can do okay. I have. When I see and know myself, me, Juan with nothing yesterday, and today Juan with everything, with everything today, I blink and look once more, see myself and ask, how can it be? I have, let's see, 
The pleasure of walking my country, owner of all it produces, looking real close at what I didn't and couldn't have. Now I can say harvest, I can say mountain, I can say city, army, n mine forever now, and yours, ours, and the broad splendor of lightning, flower, star. I have, let's see, I have the pleasure of entering me, peasant, worker, simple man, the pleasure of entering, it's just an example, a bank and speaking with the boss, not in English, not in sir, but in compañero, like they say in Spanish. I have, let's see, although black, no one can stop me at the door of a club or bar or at the hotel reception claim there's no vacancy, no small room, to, no great room, no modest room for me to rest. I have, let's see, there's no more rural guard to grab and lock me in a cell or pick me up and kick me off my land along this royal road. I have land. And like land, I have sea, not just country club, not just high life, not just tennis or yacht, but beach to beach and wave to wave, great, open, blue, democratic, in short, the sea. I have, let's see, that I learned to read, to count. I have that I learned to write and think and laugh. I have, I really have, where I can work and earn what I need to eat. I have, let's see, all that I needed to have. So that's, that's that poem. Okay, and this I, I want to read particularly because of your comment. Um, because one of the tragedies in Cuba has been the separation of families and, and deep friendships, you know, people who, who have been have really lost their best friends or, or family members to this, this terrible fact of exile where the people who left were just not considered um, for many years um, worthy of returning. And um, they are today, but um, you know, there are still these, these, these terrible absences. So this is by Laura Ruiz, a young poet from Matanzas, and it's called A Plead in Time. When little Carmen, born in North America, visits the island and goes for two weeks to a Cuban school, when she leaves her daddy and her mommy, and mommy watches her go off each morning in her red uniform among all the neighborhood children, when mommy reminds her not to correct her English teacher, when little Carmen, not Carmen Zayas Bayan, raises her hand and walks to the blackboard when mommy knows she will learn to write bad words and long paragraphs, when little Carmen after two weeks, regulation time, legally permitted time, returns to North America with her daddy, her grandma, her sister, and her dog, when mommy gives the borrowed uniform back and she gets on the plane, a pleat in time closes a wrinkle in the organized perfection of the island. Then mommy will know after so many years, after so many tears shed, return trips and books read, she will finally understand the red uniform 
impossible in North America, the bad words and the teacher's imperfect English are also part of what Carmen at each morning playground drill learned to call nation. hard to, um, to choose two poems from this book because, um, as I say, the voices are incredibly different. And I think a very interesting commentary on Cuban poetry was uh, made to me by a Cuban poet many years ago. Um, he said that, you know, people, somebody expressed to him, uh, and he's a poet who came of age with the revolution. And somebody expressed to him, well, why, you know, why don't Cuban poets write about uh, collective farms and um, and communism and um, and red flags and so forth? And he said, you know, we don't need to write about the revolution. We are the revolution. Mm -hmm. And by that, I think he meant um, that it was necessary to create a new language, a language capable of transmitting this extraordinary social change with all its ups and downs, all its in, ins and outs. And the Cuban poetry is like that in many different voices. So I hope you'll buy the book next year. And um, I'm not sure that the two poems were totally representative, but that's what I came up with. So thank you very, very much. Thank you.